0: Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. I am Rick Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for Life Over Coffee. I want to give you a seven-step template for change when trouble comes into our lives. I hope this will be a blessing to you. And if you want to read what I'm sharing with you, Please go to LifeOverCoffee.com. This is a free resource. And again, the title, A 7-Step Template for Change When Trouble Comes. It'll be easy to find. Now, as always, you can read it, you can watch it, or you can listen to it. So you choose which you desire. And I trust also that you will share it with a friend so that you can discuss it too. All right, A 7-Step Template for Change When Trouble Comes. Let's start here with a question. Are you more problem-centered or God-centered? Now, if you're not sure what I mean by that, I trust by the time that I'm finished, you will. But here is a quick way to analyze my question, and it's by assessing your most common responses to the problems the Lord brings into your life. All things, big and small, provide the context for us to examine our strengths and weaknesses regarding our walk with God. There is nothing like heat to draw out the impurities or to solidify the good things that we want to preserve. And when trouble comes, it will tell you quickly the depth and hold your faith has on you. Whether we're talking about minor traffic inconveniences or Job-level devastation, Let me illustrate. Biff was having a good day. He just came from an extended weekend at the beach with his family. Life is good. Time well spent is how Biff put it on Monday morning while chatting up his friends at work. He was alive. He was refreshed and ready to battle the week's business. By Tuesday, our old friend was slumping back into his all-too-familiar patterns. The weekend energy bump dissipated in proportion to each disappointment that came his way, and they came too quickly for him to manage. He was ready for the weekend by Wednesday. Rather than being feisty and hope-filled, he sounded more like Elijah squatting under a dead juniper tree longing for the day when the good Lord would take him out of this miserable world. Do you remember what Elijah said in First Kings 19.4? I love this passage of Scripture, but probably because I I relate to it just a little bit too much. The passage in 1 Kings 19 says this, But he himself, Elijah, went a day's journey into the wilderness, and came and sat down under a broom tree, a juniper tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Now, maybe you recognize yourself in Elijah. I do see myself in our faithful servant. I mean, one minute I am kicking bell booty all over Mount Carmel, and the next moment I'm bemoaning my very existence. And by the way, that is the context of that passage in Kings 19. Whenever our circumstances control us so much, we really need to evaluate how we think about our circumstances and also our reactions to God, who is in all of our situations. Our trouble is one of the prime diagnostic moments to discern the exact condition of our souls. Being in difficulty is bad enough, but imagine this. Missing the sovereign point of our difficulties is disappointingly myopic. Part of the problem here is having an elevated view of ourselves. There is a temptation to think we are better than we are. Then when the trouble comes and we learn the actual truth about ourselves, particularly our spiritual condition, Well, Biff is a problem-centered person orbiting around a constellation of thoughts and attitudes that vie for control of his soul. And so when I led with, are you more problem-centered or God-centered? I just gave you two illustrations of problem-centered people. One of them is Biff. Now with Biff, that is a pattern in his life. Uh, The other problem-centered person was Elijah And that was probably more of an episode because as we read his life, uh, he was a courageous warrior. And, of course, James talked about him in the New Testament as well. And so even though Elijah and Biff were problem-centered in the moments that I have described, they were also a little bit different. And maybe that's something for you to think about as well. Are you problem-centered? Is that an episode in your life? Or is that how someone would characterize you as a problem-centered person, like as I've described here with Bill? And so he uh, has these, as I mentioned, constellation of thoughts and attitudes that are vying for control of his soul and so I want to share a few of those antagonists that are seeking to captivate his troubled mind. And as you listen to this short list, I mean, maybe you can mentally check off any of these that may apply to you. Decreasing contentment, growing unrest, a lack of gratitude, cloudy judgment gnawing negativity, a temptation to retreat, hope deprivation, impoverished motivation, controlling fear, two more, relational distance, and weakened faith. Now, did any of those apply to you? Would any of these characterize you? I mean, perhaps it would serve you to list these items and to identify what applies to you, assuming that any of them do. And if they do, work through any areas of change that you need to make. These characteristics operate at a busy intersection in our hearts with more symptoms piling on by the hour, contributing to ever-increasing soul noise in the problem-centered individual. And once a person goes down this one-way street, there is only one outcome unless they make a substantial course correction. The most dangerous characteristic of all of them, could you pick it out of the list? Actually, it was the last one that I mentioned, weakened faith. That is the most dangerous one of all. You see, each symptom functions like a stepping stone, leading to the ultimate goal. Will you curse God and die, as Job's wife asked? When troubles hover over us like a dark cloud, and those things begin to control and shape and define us, we will take a severe spiritual hit, as Biff did, and our lives will begin to deny the gospel's transformative power. Paul also went through a lot of hardships, too. Sometimes he dipped so far down into the difficulties to the point of despair, and you read about that in 2 Corinthians. But unlike Biff, his trouble did not characterize him. There is that difference between episodic disappointment when trouble comes versus living in a continual cloud of being overwhelmed by our difficulties until it reshapes how we think about and react to God, to life, and to others. Either we are maturing through our problems by becoming stronger each day, Paul talked about that, Or our souls regress as a new wave of trials rolls over us. Biff was like this; he mounted up like an eagle during the weekend, and as each disappointment came, he plummeted to the ground by Tuesday, losing heart through the steady drip of unwanted daily challenges, or being, or being renewed because we're operating in the strength of another. These are our only two options. Here is how Paul talked about it in Second Corinthians four sixteen. So we do not lose heart, Biff, Elijah. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. Now, as I said, that is how Elijah was characterized. He was ever increasing, gaining strength, renewing day by day, though they were episodic dips along the way, and that's how our trend line should be. And Paul was that way as well. So how about it? Are you problem-centered like Biff? Or are you God-centered like Paul? The God-centered, faith-filled person will not only believe there is no temptation greater than God's empowering grace, but their attitudes, their words, their actions will affirm this truth. God's faithfulness to the God-centered person will be the wave that he rides through the trials of life. And even in the darkest of nights, he will be able to reorient his mind while regaining a gospel-centered equilibrium. We should be able to successfully live with the antithetical tension of good and evil, like Joseph did in 5020. You meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Well, he was one of those that was riding the wave. He always had that gospel centered equilibrium. And though we are regularly cast down, we can respond in faith toward God while mustering praise to Him. We do this because our hearts and minds are shaped and controlled. By one powerful truth. And I think a great way to say that, this powerful truth, is what John told us in 1 John 4.4. He said, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, that's either true or not. Now, perhaps you do know these truths to be true. But maybe you say, yeah, Rick, I, I get it. I know I should not be controlled by my problems. But for me, the things that I know, my intellectual theology, my orthodoxy, they do not represent my day-to-day functional theology. Now, true, there is always a space between what we know, our orthodoxy, and how we live, our orthopraxy. It's easier to learn stuff than to apply stuff, which is why we need a practical plan to help us make what we know Practical. We must know how to think, how to act, how to respond to our troubles. And so, what I want to do here is to lay out what I've titled this a a seven step template when trouble comes. And I trust that it's a simple way to think about our situational challenges, but I hope that this seven step process can actually transform anyone conditionally. Here are the conditions you're serious, you're desperate. You're willing to change. And if that characterizes you, then I trust this seven-step template to change when trouble comes will benefit you. Now, to gain the most from this template for change, I recommend that you work through it in the context of trusted friends. Those folks who care for you and do have the competency to help you, the courage maybe, also to speak into your life. And so as you work through this and if you share it with another, be honest with them and permit them to ask you the hard questions. And so I want to work through these seven steps in sequential order. Now, what I'll do is I'll give you a title. I'll talk a little bit about it, and then I'll give you some diagnostic questions. If you're listening by the car or in some other place to where... Uh, you're not able to write these diagnostics down, that's okay. I would just encourage you to go to the article at lifeovercoffee.com, and you can copy-paste, you can print off the article. Go to the bottom of the page of the article, and there's a print button there. Uh, It's there for you to print it off in a PDF, and and you can use it that way and mark it up. All right, so a seven-step template for change. Step number one I've titled, discern the purpose. Now, here's what I mean. There could be many reasons a problem enters your life. Perhaps it was because of you. Or like Job, maybe your problem had, (laughs) had nothing to do with you. You just happened to be there. You'll never fully understand the complete mind of God on why He allows trouble to come your way. Even so, you will find assurance in this truth. God allows problems to come into our lives to help us to transform into His Son. There could be many other reasons, but this one's at the top of the list. There is always this sovereign purpose behind the madness in our lives. The intent of suffering is transformation. That's the whole purpose of the gospel. Jesus came to transform lives. Transformation didn't happen 100% at Regeneration. No, we repented and we were regenerated, but we are continuing to mature into Christ's likeness until we're ultimately glorified in heaven. And so the intent of suffering is transformation. Think about some of the bad things that have happened to you. How did you mature through those situations? Maybe that would be a good thought exercise for you to spend some time thanking God, not so much for the trouble that came into your life, but the things that you learned through that trouble. Typically, when a problem comes into people's lives, they think about the other person who might have been the cause. Or they may be thinking about an early exit from the problem. How how can I get out of this? I understand. And I'm not saying that those reactions have to be wrong. However, when trouble comes, the first order of business should be to have a personal conversation with God. What does he have in mind for you? There is a time to look for the exits, of course. Wisdom is there. And there's also an opportunity and a time to think about whoever else is in the conflict that you may find yourself in. But I would go so far to say that if you miss this essential step, what does God have in mind for you, you will not be able to process the problem at hand successfully. Let me illustrate. Biff's problems are not just his struggles at work. He and Mabel have ongoing rough spots in their marriages too, which in their marriage rather too, not their marriages. Shortly after arriving home on Monday, Biff learns that Mabel overspent money on clothes. Again, this incident is not the first time. Rather than seeking the Lord first, trying to discern how Biff could learn, grow, and change through this problem, Biff chose to go off on Mabel. Now, perhaps you have done that, too. I have. And let's just say that that is not a good plan. That is not the first thing that we should be thinking about. That's why this seven-step plan that I'm laying out for you, step number one, discern the purpose of the trouble that you are in. And the purpose is not for you to go off on Mabel. And so rather than adjusting his heart before the Lord, he tried to fix Mabel. Guess what? It made things worse. And so here's your diagnostic for uh, step number one, discern the purpose. When trouble comes your way, are you quick to judge your heart before you address others who may be part of the problem? Now, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't talk to others or address others who may be a part of the problem, but first things first. Would you be willing to talk about how you have done it both ways, assuming that you're like me? How did you benefit from addressing your heart first? Or what went wrong when you focused first on the other person? So step number one, discern the purpose of the trouble. and. The most important purpose is to transform us first. Step number two, discern your heart. We know what the purpose is. Now we want to discern our hearts. It would have been better for Biff to discern how the Lord wanted to change his heart. God operates with purpose, including when he permits problems in your life. It does not matter at this point who is most at fault. Weighing guilt and innocence is essential but not of first importance when working through relational conflict. If your first call to action is not to place the spiritual stethoscope over your heart so you can carefully judge yourself, your judgments of others will more than likely be tainted. A more mature believer would have discerned how God was in his trouble, the purpose, and he might not know why, but his God-centered instincts will kick in when the problem happens. Rather than being an accuser of the brethren, or in this case, an accuser of his spouse, he would have been an expectant seeker, knowing God was up to something good. And so step number two, you discern the purpose, now you are discerning the heart. Here's your diagnostic question. How do things turn out when you address your heart and adjust yourself accordingly? As you talk with your friend, draw them out about how they typically respond during their relational conflicts. What can you learn from them? How can you help them, assuming that they need help, discern your heart? And then step number three, discern hardness. In Hebrews 4 7, it says this, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. By not addressing what God sought to do in Biff's heart first, he began laying down a thin veneer over his conscience. The conscience, the inner voice, conscience, co-knowledge. It operates as an internal moral thermostat. It reveals the temperature of our hearts, signaling any needed changes. If we ignore our moral thermostats, they will go on the blink by shutting down. This effect will ultimately blind Biff to his weaknesses and his pro- proclivities. He will not be able to do what the Hebrew writer said today if you hear his voice. Do not harden your heart. I've done this too many times in my relationship with Lucia. She may do something I do not like. Maybe she's wrong. I I don't know. That's not the point here. But I immediately respond in a careless and non-sanctifying way. That is the point here for now. And rather than adjusting my heart first and benefiting from the Lord's sanctifying work in me, hearing the Spirit's voice, if you hear His voice, rather than doing that, I try to change her. And when I do this, I miss some of the underlying sins in my heart that drive my responses toward her and thus I botch up our relationship even further. Diagnostic question. When you think about your conflict, what are some of the more common underlying sins in your heart? Can you name them and claim them? The things, that, <clears throat> excuse me, the things that the Spirit of God has provided illumination for you to see regarding yourself. What do you think will happen to your conscience if you ignore the work of the Spirit in your heart? Today you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Maybe you know someone who continues to resist God. How has the hardening effect of the conscience impacted their lives and relationships? And as I ask you to think about them i would want you to do that with all charity and with all humility with the log firmly planted in in your eyes so that we're not harshly judging them or or gossiping about them but that may be a good exercise to think about people who who do continue to harden their hearts step number four identify and isolate so you you're addressing your heart Uh, you see some underlying sin issues in your heart. Now you want to identify them clearly, and then you want to isolate them. Of course, the purpose of that is so that you can repent. We all have the ability to choose good or evil. One of the most dangerous places a person can be is unable to perceive the Spirit's illuminations and thus not discern the trickery of the heart. This spot is no man's land where you can easily exchange the truth of God for a lie. Because of a desire to press God's truth out of our lives, flying blind through life, unable to discern the evil machinations of the heart, is a dance with the devil. Sometimes a person will wonder why such and such evil uh, uh, happened, and they will will say things like, how could they do that? Well, the evil that occurred stands at the end of a long trail of the person who continued to ignore the hidden morality of his heart. It just didn't happen. How did he do that? No, you'll see a path as you look back in his life of making decisions, of incrementally, slowly exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And so this uh, step uh, step here, step number four, is you want to identify and isolate. Here's your diagnostic What did you write down in response to the previous diagnostic question about underlying sin issues in your heart? Now, can you identify and isolate the sin or sins that seek to capture your heart when trouble comes into your life? Would you be willing to discuss these things with a trusted friend? you must do more than discern them. In the previous step, you wanted to discern them, which is good, but you got to go a step further. You You have to isolate them, and then you want to identify them. Step number five, see what you can't see. If you move too soon toward the person on the other end of your problem while missing how your heart is deceiving you, You'll miss out on the critical work of God in your life. It is a mercy from the Lord to bring thorns into our lives. And we don't have to like them, but ultimately it is a mercy. It allows us to see ourselves more clearly. I mean, aren't we so easily tempted to react to the problem or react to the person before we react to our own hearts? we gloss over or worse we miss entirely how our hearts are becoming entangled by sin rather than being first responders to these crimes in our hearts we ignore them and begin correcting others let me share with you a few of the entangling sins of the heart most of which come out of our mouths making them easy to identify you see uh, uh, Luke said in 6.45, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so when you're hearing the mouth talking, well, there is a direct connection between the tongue and the heart. And so whatever's coming out of the mouth is telling you the condition of the person's heart. That's why it's not that difficult to make these diagnostics because you're hearing what they are saying. And so here are some of the entangling sins of a person's heart. Anger frustration, fear, dread, angst, complaining, grumbling, demanding, disappointment, regret, self-pity, and discouragement. Now, if these things are coming out of a person's life, then you You don't want this person addressing the other individual on the other side of the room, not yet, because they haven't done sufficient heart work yet. Here's your diagnostic here for uh, step number five. Do any of these things apply to you? Will you write a prayer of praise to the Lord, thanking Him for revealing specific deceptions of your heart? Would you be willing to share what you wrote with a friend? Perhaps your spouse, imagine a couple, they're going through this seven-step template for change when trouble comes, and a husband and wife are reading this. This would be, this would be a huge opportunity. It, it would be redemptively dramatic if they had the humility and the maturity to do this, but I know that many couples aren't at this place. How is this process beginning to change your thinking about you? and any conflict in your life. All right, step number six, wrestle with the Lord. As you can hear, your first call to action is to bring your heart to the Lord, asking the Spirit to dissect you so that you can see the duplicity within you, and then appeal to Him to appropriate the transformative work of the gospel that Jesus has provided for you. These six steps, this is step six here, wrestling with the Lord, must be how you begin working through conflict. These six steps have to precede you talking to the other person across the room if your aim is a God-glorifying, mutually satisfying result. Though you will not eradicate all of your spirit-illuminated sins today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart, you'll have them on the run. Patterns will become episodes and your episodic moments will grow farther apart. Also remember that you're not looking for the perfection of God's sanctifying grace in your life, not in this life, glorification is coming later, but what you're looking for is the presence of God's sanctifying grace, which you can measure by the growing time and distance between sinful events. God's grace must work actively in your life to the point where your response to trouble is filled with hope, not dread. Gratitude not grumbling, faith not frustration. Only then will you become God-centered enough to be able to biblically problem-solve sin problems and relational conflict. All right, so there are six steps of the seven-step plan, a template for change when trouble comes. Let us review how you can make this practical. I want to give you a few, I want to give you a linkage here of. Basically what I've said here so that you can think about it in sequential order quickly, all in one shot. Number one, trouble happens. Number two, your impulse is to view it as an opportunity to change. Praise God. Number three, your humility positions you to address specific proclivities in your heart. Number four, you begin a process of appropriating God's grace in your life. Number five, you are maturing through the trial rather than withering because of it. Number six, with a properly adjusted heart, you begin to address anyone else who may be in the conflict. Here's your diagnostic for step six. How has this process changed your thoughts? about others. Hopefully your attitude toward anyone who might be part of the conflict has already started softening as the Lord addressed your imperfections and provided grace for necessary heart recalibrations. A properly adjusted heart positions you to address them with humility, leading to personal and relational transformation, which brings us to step number seven thinking about others. Finally. Six for you, one for them. Number six. thinking. Uh, number seven, rather, thinking about others. The first six steps dealt with your heart. And I'm sure you have discerned by now how the most challenging part of problem solving and the bulk of the work needed to accomplish relational success is with you rather than others. Does this strike you as odd or different or wrong headed? When trouble comes into your life, are you quicker to speak or quicker to listen? By the way, flip everything around. Imagine there's conflict between you and someone else. Wouldn't you want that other person to apply these six steps to their life? Are you more willing to address the other person first, or do you choose to take your soul to task in a rigorous rigorous way? I wonder how different problem solving would be if we were more in tune with our hearts before we responded to others. I have observed that I make problems more complicated when I act like a knucklehead by not addressing what the Lord is trying to teach me. This is a seven-step uh, template for change when trouble comes. You can read everything that I've just shared with you at lifeovercoffee.com. I don't want to wrap up here, but I do have a couple of questions that I want to ask you. Let's start with... Let's start with how I began. Are you problem-centered or God-centered? Why did you answer the way that you did? Number two, as you think through your last couple of conflicts, what did those moments reveal about your heart? Number three, what specific ways can you change so you respond to God and others more redemptively? Number four, remember Biff, at the beginning... He was the high-flying weekend warrior slumping into the dumps by Tuesday. Based on what you have read here, how would you counsel him? Would you make this a case study? What might he be missing in his life? Now, maybe you have a real-life person that you—well, maybe it's you, or, or maybe it's someone else. This could be an excellent case study to teach them about relational conflict. All right, number five, finally. What I want to do here is give you a life project. And so, again, you can— Uh, Get this off of our website, LifeOverCoffee.com, and then you can uh, copy down these words that I'm going to share with you. But earlier, I gave you a list of negative traits. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You remember anger, frustration, so forth, complaining, grumbling. That's for the problem-centered person. I mean, maybe you saw yourself in that list, but I don't want to leave you with that list. I want to give you a list of attributes of a God-centered person person. Now this will be an excellent way to assess yourself by comparing your heart, your attitude, your words, your actions to this list that I'm going to give you. And so pretend this list is a mirror you're looking in it. I mean, does it look like you? Now remember, you're looking for the, you're not looking for the perfection of these things because uh, that could send us all into the dumps, but what you are looking for are the presence of these things. Now, maybe it would help if you wrote all these out on a piece of paper, each trait, and then you know, check off and talk about the ones that apply to you and then talk about the ones, well, areas of needed growth. So here's a list and you can make it a life project, something you can spend a, a few days or a week on, just a list of words for you to see how the presence of these things are active in your uh, heart. Joy, contentment, rest, confidence, God-centered confidence, not self-confidence, assurance, gratitude, Wisdom, discernment, hope, belief, expectation, progress, like in um, transformation, progressively, progressive transformation. Moldable, like teachable. Eschatological, meaning you have the future in mind and you're optimistic about the future and confidently moving toward it. Comfortable, encouraged, motivated, obedient, proactive, stable, encourager, cheerful, optimistic, determined, submitted, endurance, awareness, a couple others, elimination. You haven't hardened your conscience. You, you can hear his voice today and you're not hardened in your heart. Experience. You're growing from life experience. God-reliance, not self-reliance responsive, and peace. Now, there's just a list of random words, but it could be an excellent life project to list them out and see how well they represent you or maybe some areas of possible change. Seven-step template for change when trouble comes. Thanks so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.